six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places truth is never Good afternoon and welcome to a public affair. My name is Douglas Haynes and I'll be your host for this hour. Today we're going to talk about the intertwined lives of Wisconsin dairy farmers and their workers from Mexico and Central America. In the process, we'll explore the future of dairy farming and Wisconsin's rural communities. Over the last decade, more than half of Wisconsin's dairy farms have disappeared. At the same time, the number of firms, farms with herds of more than 1,000 cows has increased rapidly. These massive dairies require workers to milk and manage the cows every hour of every day. But few people born in Wisconsin are willing to do these jobs. So dairies have come to increasingly rely on workers from Mexico and Central America who see the year-round steady work on dairies as an opportunity. The exact number of migrant workers on Wisconsin dairies is hard to pin down, but there's no doubt they make up the majority of the dairy workforce. Nonetheless, there's no federal visa program for year-round agricultural laborers. So, most of the people producing our nation's milk are working illegally, Wisconsin journalist Ruth Conniff tells us in her new book, Milked, How an American Crisis Brought Together Midwestern Dairy Farmers and Mexican Workers. This book tells the story of the ongoing transformation of Wisconsin's dairy industry and the rural communities that depend on it. In the process, the book creates intimate portraits of people putting food on our plates and the deep relationships Latin American workers and Wisconsin farmers are forming. Ultimately, Ruth Conniff suggests these relationships can help us imagine more constructive politics, more humane migration policies, and a more sustainable food system. Ruth Conniff is the editor-in-chief of the Wisconsin Examiner and an editor-at-large of The Progressive. Congratulations on the book's release, Ruth, and welcome to A Public Affair. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. And yeah, it's exciting to have it finally out. Yeah, it's just out, right? Just out. Yep. Came out last week. Wonderful. We're, we have uh, lots of time today to dive into it. Welcome, listeners. We'd love to share uh, for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for Ruth or would like to share a perspective about Wisconsin's dairies and their workers, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Ruth, I'd love to start by having you tell us about how your book, Milked, came to be. What drew you to write about dairy farmers and their workers from Latin America? Well, shortly after Donald Trump became president of the United States, my family and I decided to leave the country and move to Mexico for a year. Um, and that was really the, the origin point of the book. I uh, became editor-at-large and uh, stopped being editor-in-chief of the Progressive Magazine. Um, and we took our three girls down to Oaxaca, where they went to school, had a total Spanish immersion experience, and it was a great, great year. It was great to get a perspective on the United States from across the border um, and just to sort of get out from under the colossal pressure of the Trump administration for a little while. But what was interesting was just as we were leaving, there was an article that I read in the State Journal. It was a, a Wisconsin investigative reporting project piece by Alex Hall about a family of Mexican workers who were packing up on a dairy farm in western Wisconsin, and they were moving back. They had had it with being here during ICE raids and increasingly hostile anti-immigrant rhetoric. They had been here for decades working on this farm, and they decided to move home. And I was so interested to read in this story. It was the first time that I read that statistic that 80% of the labor on Wisconsin dairy farms is performed by undocumented immigrants, mostly from Mexico and some from Central America. But 80%, I mean, we are really heavily dependent on these folks. And there is this, you know, long-term pattern of families coming up for a long time. And as the border has become increasingly militarized for longer stretches, because it's hard to go back and forth and doing this work. So I decided that I would find this family when I got down to Mexico and I took the bus to Veracruz. And sure enough, there was the same pickup truck that was described in the article. They'd packed it up with all their possessions and driven home. And I visited Luisa Tepoli who was living in the house they had built with the money they earned milking cows. And she talked about their life and how they had met in Wisconsin. They had been there a couple of decades between them, her husband and she. Their two little boys were born in Wisconsin and they felt relieved to be not living in fear of deportation and having their family separated. Um, 
But also it was hard. Going back was hard. The kids were Wisconsinites and they were being mocked in school for speaking Spanish with a Wisconsin accent. And it just sort of opened up for me the whole idea of this hidden part of our economy and these hidden relationships between farmers and workers. And I spent some time in that same town, San Juan Texocan, where Luisa Tepole lives, interviewing other folks who, who later became um, central to the book, who had spent many, many years up in the United States, mostly in western Wisconsin and just over the border in Minnesota, milking cows. And um, it just was really interesting to me how the farmers depended on them, how these were long-term multi-generational relationships between farm families in two rural places, that both rural places are experiencing a real crisis. Um, you know, as you mentioned in the intro, we're losing a farm a day in Wisconsin. We have the largest rate of farm bankruptcy in the United States, any state. And growing is not something that farmers necessarily wanted to do, but the get big or get out trends in agriculture make it really hard to survive with low milk prices unless you can milk a lot of cows. And that's how it all began, the milking, you know, the hiring of Mexican workers who moved over mostly from Christmas tree farms in Wisconsin to, to do year-round jobs in the dairies. Um, and as you mentioned, there's no year-round visa. There is no option to do low-skilled agricultural work year-round legally in this country. So they are almost all undocumented. Um, so I just got really into, <laughs> into getting to know the people. And um, Alex Hall, who wrote that original piece of reporting that inspired me, uh, also connected me with Sean Duval, the Spanish teacher from Alma, Wisconsin, who started working as a translator on farms between Mexican workers and their far the farmers that they work for, and then had this inspiration to take the farmers down to Mexico in what started out as a language immersion experience and became an annual trek for them to meet the families of their workers and see the homes and businesses that were being built down there with the money that their workers were making on the farms. So I went along on one of those trips when we returned from our year in Mexico and really enjoyed seeing the farmers and these workers who they had these many year relationships with connect. So that's how it all started. <laughs> yeah. That's a um, fascinating story. Um, and I'd love to have you take us a little bit deeper now into the stories of some of the people in your book, um, you mentioned Sean Duval, who was sort of a connector of lots of people. Um, and uh, have you talk a little bit more about the farmers themselves and their workers? So it was, you know, when I went on the first trip, when I went on this trip with the farmers to Mexico, um, one of the key figures in that story uh, is a guy named Stan, who's a 70-year-old farm, farmer, 76 now, um, who was a long-haul truck driver for a long time, has a dairy farm uh, in Stockholm, Wisconsin. Stan Linder is his name. And he drove that truck down to Mexico. He loaded it up with all kinds of gifts from workers here to send back to their relatives. So huge stock pots for making tamales and baseball bats and clothes and tools and all kinds of stuff. And uh, drove down, and the rest of the farmers flew down and met him. And he drove them through this um, winding route and through the mountains in Veracruz, where the, most of the workers lived in little towns, stopping in one village or another. And the first night that I was there and connected with them, he walked into a restaurant and was immediately embraced by two women, Blanca Hernandez and Fatima Tepole, who had worked in his area for years and years and knew him well. And they were thrilled to see him and they made a big fuss over him and they brought a big bottle of tequila and everybody sat down and between Stan, his granddaughter, who was along for the ride and those two, Fatima and Blanca, they drained the bottle of tequila that night. Um, and just, it was, it was cute. Like they had this very fun, funny time. They teased him a lot about his Spanish. Um, they caught up on what was going on. And then the next morning, Stan went to visit his employee Clara's house and was standing in the garden in the sunshine when Clara called on the phone and the polar vortex was going on back in Wisconsin. It was incredibly cold. The trucks wouldn't start. Everything was frozen. So I thought that was kind of interesting. They had switched places. He was looking at her nearly built house, which was very impressive with this wraparound porch looking out of the mountains. And she was back on the farm trying to figure out what to do about getting the trucks started. Um, 
And Clara and Stan, Clara has lived there for more than 10 years on the farm. She has two sons who are also U.S. born kids. And back in the United States, spending time with Stan and Clara was interesting to see kind of the ambivalent situation that she's in. She wants to go home someday. And that is a common theme among these workers. Like circular migration is a long-term reality for Mexican workers. And there isn't so much an American dream for a lot of these folks. It's a Mexican dream. Make a lot of money here, go back, build your house, start a business, you know, make, make a better life back home. Um, so she wants to do that, but her kids are now high school age. And they are less and less interested in this idea of going back and living in this little village in the mountains in Mexico. And so when to go back and what to do about that is just a constant question for her. And it was interesting listening to them talk. Stan drives them to do their shopping every Saturday. And I went along on one of those Saturday trips. They go to the grocery store and they load up on stuff and then they go to a Mexican market and eat tacos. and. Uh, send money home, you know, they can send their money home through the Mexican market, which you've probably seen. Um, so I went along and she was talking the whole time about, I don't know, you know, if I take them out of school and take them back now, I want them to meet my parents, but I don't want to, you know, do anything to disrupt the opportunities they might have here. She sort of has a dream for them to go to college and make a life in the United States, but it's painful because she would, like to be with them and she wants them to be to know her parents and be part of her family so stan was thinking about whether he uh would drive them down as he's done every year driving on these long trips and there's a lot of discussion of that and and he clearly had a deep investment in in how the kids were doing he said you know they're kind of bashful they know their parents can't drive because of course in wisconsin we've made it illegal for for undocumented people to have driver's licenses since 2007 um, so they feel a little bit shy and isolated. They're sort of in between. They're sort of in between worlds. And that was true of a lot of people that I talked to him about. Yeah, another tension that emerges in those stories you're you're telling just now and all throughout the book is this tension between uh, a happy life and uh, an economically successful life. And so many of the characters or people in the book talk about uh, people being happier in Mexico but you know they're not able to make uh, a living there. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little bit more about that tension and, and how that informs people's decisions? Well, it was so interesting to me that the farmers really felt this deep connection with these hardworking rural people from Mexico because that was their background. And they were working side by side with the workers. It's not like they were running a big corporate operation from an office with employees. So there was this sense of, here are people who really appreciate and honor farm work. I mean, that's one of the things that John Rosenau, who's a main character in the book, said. These are people who see farm work as honorable. And Americans don't see farm work as honorable. They would take public assistance before they would work on a farm. Um, and the idea that it's an agrarian an agrarian background. So Chris Weisenbach, one of the farmers, said when he first visited Mexico, he saw all the people in this community coming out and helping to build a house together, pouring cement and doing all the work together. And he was wowed because it reminded him of his childhood in the 1960s growing up in western Wisconsin. And so that feeling of hard work and um, caring about animals and the land is something that they have in common. And I think that that was sort of touching to me because of course rural places in both Mexico and the United States are under so much stress and a lot of that life being able to make a decent living on a small kind of human scale farm is fading for both groups of people and I think that's that's what drives some of that nostalgia on the part of the farmers in this country for the Mexican workers I mean what they've gone through is just incredible Blanca Hernandez one of the women who came and drank tequila with Stan and who is so much fun she has smuggled herself into the United States four times, once in the trunk of a car where she nearly died. She worked in an airplane parts factory in North Carolina for a while. She's done a bunch of different jobs, ended up working for a very soft-spoken, sweet uh, farmer in western Wisconsin named Bill Traum, completely reorganized and cleaned up his farm and got his, got his operation in good shape um, and made her money 
and went back and built a house next door to her siblings' houses. And in, at the time in Mexico, you could pay somebody who was retiring from a teaching job to take that job. That's something that's been eliminated in this current administration, but she did that. So she's now a bilingual teacher in Mexico and teaches in Nahuatl, which is the indigenous language of her area and Spanish, and has a real mission to these little kids and does an amazing job. I mean, she's just a hugely energetic woman, but she felt that she really could not have bought a car built a house, had a good job, if she hadn't come to the United States and worked around the clock milking cows for years and years. And so really going to that kind of extreme to make a living, it just seems incredible. You know, I mean, I feel like we don't understand what people are willing to do, how hard they work, um, and how proud they are of it. And the farmers were proud of it too, visiting and seeing the, the houses and the businesses, um, and, it, you know, so that that's kind of a point of connection. And I think it's important to notice that and to to lift it up a little bit in this political environment, because a lot of these farmers are Republicans. And, you know, Wisconsin is famous for helping Trump in 2016 and mostly because of rural voters. And yet there is this long and deep personal relationship and economic relationship of dependence of our state on undocumented workers in Mexico. And so that kind of bridge of understanding through this program called Bridges that Sean Duval, the Spanish teacher I mentioned, built, I think it's it's a little window into a different possibility. Great. I just want to remind listeners that you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm hosting today's episode. We're talking with veteran Wisconsin journalist Ruth Conniff about her new book, Milked. If you would like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or reach out to A Public Affair on Facebook. Ruth, I'd love to have you take us now to the place or region of Wisconsin where you spent a lot of time for this book, up in Buffalo County uh, and uh, Trempolo County. And uh, there are a couple of places in particular that stood out to me in the book. One is uh, John Rosenau's farm, which is a sort of real locus for the book. And just tell us, paint us a picture of his farm and his connection to the land. And then uh, maybe we'll get to nearby Arcadia in a few minutes and talk about that a little bit. So John Rosenau is a, I don't know how many generations actually, fourth generation dairy farmer in Wisconsin. His family came over from Switzerland and they settled in Wamandi in Buffalo County. And um, he, I walked through the graveyard with him and looked at all of the uh, relatives that he has in that area. And what's interesting is he, his parents spoke German to each other when they didn't want the kids to understand. And yet he and his sister have retained a little bit of German because they use German farm terms. Um, And so he has a really strong sense of his own immigrant history and the history of immigrants starting the dairy farms in Wisconsin. And so the Mexican workers that he hired, he was one of the very first farmers to hire Mexican workers in the late 90s, early 2000s, when the get bigger, get out trend really hit farms hard. And and that that really started to happen. That farms grew from 50 cows managed entirely by family members to 100, 300 cows managed by people who had to hire somebody to help them with all that work. So he started hiring Mexican workers. Um, his The school that he attended is still on the land that he owns as a dairy farmer. It's a little schoolhouse. And I know you've been inside it, Doug. <laughs> That's where the workers now have their apartments. Yeah. Um, so you feel a lot of the history, talking to him, you feel a lot of the history of the valley and sort of that sense of waves of immigrants coming through. So he he would like to hand over his farm to the Mexican workers who are working on it now, and he's trying to figure out an employee ownership scheme so that he could pass that on to them, which is really interesting. And they have become, you know, he has a couple of workers who've been there a long time who have become just critical to what he's doing. And, and also really family to him in a lot of ways. One of the chapters in the book, I write about Helene, who's one of the workers on Rosenau's farm, who is herself an immigrant from Switzerland. And she came over with her parents who speak French. They, they never learned English. 
And she said she was standing in Arcadia in a store and she saw a mother who was speaking Spanish and a little boy who was translating for her. And the cashier was sort of giving the woman a hard time and Helene got mad on her behalf because it was just like a scene from her own childhood. She was always the translator for her parents who spoke only French. Um, so she has a really keen sense of um, of the sameness of, of the immigrant experience, whether it's from Latin America or from Europe. Um, and has a close relationship. She's a farm worker on the Rosenau farm um, and has defended workers when there were bar fights in Wamandi and there were locals who were blaming uh, Mexican workers for getting into trouble. Uh, her position, she's a non-drinker and her position is, look, first of all, you want to say only the Hispanics were getting drunk, but that's not the case. <laughs> she's a tough lady and she defends her coworkers. And, um, I thought was a really interesting voice in the book because it's just this reminder of this repressed reality that all of the European Americans who are here came over as immigrants and the sort of us and them rhetoric about immigrants from Latin America is absurd. It's just another wave of immigration. Now it's a little bit different with Mexican workers because there's so much circular migration and so not everybody really is planning to stay. But I think those stories about the families with children who were born here who have really assimilated here kind of shows how quickly things change in a generation. And that's, you know, it's possible that John can leave his farm to his workers. He's competing with their vision of life back home, which might be more appealing for them. So, you know, it's it, that's kind of an ongoing discussion, whether that'll happen. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit more about the day-to-day -day routine. So of these workers and their relationship with uh, the farmer, John in this case, or if another farm comes to mind. But what is what is day-to-day -day life like for um Mexican and Central American workers on these big Wisconsin dairies? Well, it varies. I mean, if you're lucky, you work for John Rosenau because he's a really um, caring employer. And people work in shifts because the cows have to be managed around the clock and year round every single day. Um, they, you know, the cows are pushed into the milking parlor and one person's job is to clean off their udders and attach the milking equipment and run the milking shifts and then push the cows back out into the barn. Um, Rosenau was a, he was an innovator and he was an early adapter of technology that's, that's actually changed the landscape in ways that are not great in Wisconsin. We don't see that many black and white cows grazing in fields anymore because a lot of them have moved indoors into these huge operations. And, and, John Rosenau was one of the very first people in Wisconsin to build one of those big barns that's like an indoor pasture where the cows stay all the time. So scraping manure, um, feeding the cows, mixing the feed and, and providing that to them, pushing them in and out of the barns, managing the birth of calves and separating the calves from the mothers and then bottle feeding the calves and pens. Those are all jobs that workers are doing starts super early in the morning. It goes until really late at night. And a lot of the Mexican workers want to pick up as many shifts as they can because they do have this vision of going back, making as much money as they can. And in a lot of ways, just not having a whole lot of fun while they're here in this country. There's not a lot of socializing. Uh, you know, people are not going out and spending money on restaurant meals. They're not going out and, um, you know, not taking any vacations. Um, and of course, there is real exploitation. And that is also in the book. There are people who have ended up on farms working really hard around the clock. And then the farmers have said, no, I'm not going to pay you. Um, Lindina, one of the uh, women that I interviewed for the book, it was in that kind of a situation. And it was Sean Duval, the Spanish teacher who worked as a translator. And the woman who took over from her, Mercedes Falk, who's now doing that translation work on the farms, who helped her find another employer, but was unsuccessful in arguing with the farmer and getting him to pay her the money he owed her. Because people have no rights. You know, there's very little in the way of health care. Blandina has a couple of kids who qualify for Medicaid help. And so they are getting some health care that is very meaningful to her and some treatment for autism that's very meaningful to her. But... You know, she was living in a trailer with her autistic son, afraid to let him outside and working around the clock for this guy who ended up not paying her. Uh, so it's, a, you know, it's a dicey proposition for people who come here. And there's, you know, there's just no protection for people. It's a real 
problem. So for, for many of the families that I interviewed, the farmers that I got to know, they just have this um, personal relationship with three or four or five employees who stay for years and years. And, uh, and that works out for people on both sides, but there are also some really, some really terrible situations. Um, I'd love to expand our scope a little bit further now um, and maybe move into uh, Arcadia and other nearby communities and talk about that uh, interaction between um, farming communities and uh, the larger communities that they're connected with. And particularly, Arcadia is, is this striking example because of the presence of Ashley Furniture there, which has drawn workers from all over, but particularly Mexico and Central America. And you do have this beautiful chapter about the barber of Arcadia, Emmanuel. Um, so tell us about Arcadia and the role of Latin Americans there as this um, sort of also ongoing story about the way uh, migration is changing rural Wisconsin. Yeah. So Emmanuel, I was connected to through Clara and Stan. He's Clara's cousin. He came up and worked on the farms. Stan has pictures of Emmanuel when he was a little boy showing him around, you know, helping him walk through these rugged mountain passes in Mexico and some of the early visits that Stan paid to that village. He came up here. He worked for a little while on the farms. He worked for Ashley Furniture for a while, and he always cut hair. He had cut hair since he was young, and he started sort of on as a sideline going to people's houses and cutting their hair. Um, and then was able to open his own barbershop on the main drag in Arcadia. And he is just a pivotal figure in a lot of ways. He uh, married a woman from Central America and decided to stay in Wisconsin. He's not going back, unlike Clara, who really still dreams of going back. And he talks about what that's like to sort of establish yourself as an immigrant here and decide that you're going to make it. And meanwhile, Arcadia which is like a lot of rural Wisconsin towns, an aging population with a lot of out-migration of young people, has been completely revitalized by the Spanish-speaking population. For one thing, their public school would have closed had it not been for the 70-some-odd percent Spanish speakers who are students there now. Um, but also, when you drive down the main drag, you see a couple of um, really down-in-the-mouth-looking bars that are run by people who have been locals for a long time. And then you see a proliferation of Mexican grocery stores and other businesses that are, you know, sort of the new lifeblood of that city. Arcadia had a mayor who became famous nationally because he was an anti-sanctuary city mayor and he wanted to make um, local ordinances like you had to fly the American flag and, um, you know, questioning people about their immigration status. And that was, of course, anathema to the local employers who are heavily, heavily dependent on an undocumented workforce, uh, not to mention realtors who are making money, selling, you know, renting people apartments. And uh, it was just, it was a disaster. And he was, he was run out of office in a recall election, but it just shows you kind of this tipping point um, place in rural Wisconsin where, you know, maybe John Rosenau is right. And a new wave of immigrants is going to be the business and political leaders in our state and are going to be sort of the new face of Wisconsin. And you can see it happening demographically. But people are also really kept down by immigration laws, by ice raids, which have been, you know, there have been a lot of ice raids in Arcadia. Um, so talking to Christine Newman-Ortiz, who runs Bolsas de la Frontera, the Immigrant Workers' Rights Group, she, she has done a lot of work in Arcadia. They fought Ashley Furniture um, when it was questioning people about their immigration status and telling them that they, would, they were forbidden from talking to their colleagues about it at work. Um, she won a, an important lawsuit in that case. She says, you know, demographics is not enough. You have to build political power intentionally. And you can see that in, in Arcadia, there were some immigrant rights activists who came to a local school board meeting, the school board had decided to save money by cutting bus routes. So they weren't going to offer school bus service to some students. And the problem was there were a lot of ice raids going on at that time. And the parents were terrified to get in the car and drive their children to school. So this was an important issue for the immigrant community, something that the school board members had really not given any thought to. 
And one of the activists stood up at that school board meeting and <laughs> just pointed to the school board, said, why didn't you even think to have a translator here to speak in Spanish to people? And she turned to the audience and she said, you need to vote these people out. You need to take power over your own schools and your own community here. And it's kind of thrilling <laughs> because you see people who are really living in fear and kind of beaten down and you see the potential that they have to build power. And then in somebody like Emmanuel, the, the barber of Arcadia, someone who's gotten to know absolutely everyone in the community and is, you know, a really um, upbeat entrepreneurial guy who has a lot of vision for how he wants his life to be. And, um, you know, he's making it happen. And it's, it's a burst of energy for a rural place that badly needs it. So it's interesting. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes. I'm hosting today's episode with Ruth Conniff, Wisconsin journalist, talking about her new book, Milked. If you'd like to join the conversation, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk or reach out to A Public Affair on Facebook. So what you were just talking about there, Ruth, really raises questions of, of kind of what the future of rural Wisconsin looks like and uh, how we create that future, which is also where your book kind of ends up as well. We have an opportunity here to imagine the future we want. Um, you conclude with two chapters that evoke possibilities for more sustainable economic systems in both the U.S. and Mexico that would not provoke mass migration, that where, where people would be able to stay home, right, and make a living where they are. But at the same time, the book celebrates all the cross-cultural connections that emerge from migration. Uh, what does the most desirable future look like to you after immersing yourself in rural Wisconsin and the, the dynamics of migration here for so long? Well, there's some short and long-term possibility. So in the short term, it is absolutely absurd that the United States doesn't recognize the heavy dependency of especially agriculture, but also food service and construction and hospitality and other industries on undocumented workers. We are bringing these people here deliberately because we need their labor. And so to criminalize that and punish people for it is just outrageous. And it's, and it's fixable, you know, so the, in the short term, like, there should at least be a year-round visa for these dairy workers. That's just a no-brainer. Um, you know, in the in the bigger picture, and where you talk about my going at that towards the end of the book, the whole idea of get big or get out. And Sonny Perdue, Trump's agriculture secretary, came here in the heart of the farm crisis and told farmers, "Well, if you're small, you might go under. You know, <laughs> the big get bigger, the small go out." This is unbelievably cruel. You know, and as you know, like. Farmer suicide is one of the most important agricultural issues in Wisconsin. So we need to imagine a future where people can make a living at a more humane scale. And the mega farms, you know, like the farm that's going in in Green Bay with 30,000 cows where they're um, arguing that they shouldn't have to abide by state regulations that prevent them from dumping manure in the local water supply. This is not a good, this is a pretty dystopian future for all of us, not just for farmers. So um, how do we rescue that? So I, I went down and talked to Wendell Berry and his daughter, Mary Berry in Kentucky, who are, you know, huge advocates for small, small farm life. And Mary Berry has run uh, sort of the restoration of local meat processing in her area. And during the pandemic, when meat processors were slammed and shut down and farmers were euthanizing their animals and grocery store shelves were empty, it was really a pretty vivid demonstration that we need smaller, more local food systems. So she was able to bring meat into West St. Louis because she works with this group of very small farmers who run organic grass-fed beef farms in Kentucky. Um, in Wisconsin, we need to restore uh, smaller processors for cheese. We need to have artisanal products. We need to support people who want to get into farming on a smaller scale level um, that's better for the environment. and that feeds people locally instead of, you know, producing a product that's traded on the global market as a commodity. So that is doable. And there are a lot of people thinking about it. One of those people, interestingly, was this economist, Luis Rey, who I met in Mexico, who talks about village life in Oaxaca and how growing up, 
you know, people just had this smaller scale life. And again, this has a lot of resonance with things that the farmers in Wisconsin have said about sort of what life was like on a smaller scale, less industrial scale. Um, so he tells this great story about meeting a U.S. economist who came to Oaxaca and announced proudly that he had discovered the root cause of poverty in southern Mexico, and it was the lack of ambition in the people, because <laughs> he had interviewed shopkeepers in Oaxaca and asked them, you know, what's your ambition? Do you want to own two shops? Do you want to have the biggest store in town? Do you want to drive your neighbors out of business? And they sort of looked at him in horror and said, no, you know, this is fine. What I have is fine. It's sufficient. And I like to close early and have coffee with my friends. And, um, it's, you know, just a different value system that doesn't value perpetual growth, which of course is an environmental impossibility, um, or just a, you know, raw capitalist competitiveness where you're seeking to drive people out of business who are people who are part of your community. Um, so he talks about how, in fact, instead of looking at the sort of the classic Western economic model of evolution to a higher level of of capitalist economy where people are just brutally out for themselves and destroying the planet. We need to think about sustainability and a humane scale of life that people actually want to live. And, and I think that that fits very nicely with what Wendell Berry talks about and Mary Berry talks about, and also the farmers in Wisconsin talk about sort of in their nostalgia for village life and their delight in seeing how people are living in Mexico. Uh, so I think there's something there and there is a, you know, there's a global movement, food sovereignty movement and sustainable ag movement. Um, but as Mary Berry says, it needs to go beyond sort of trendy farmers markets and upscale farm to table restaurants. It really needs to be about changing what is in the grocery store and, and, you know, accessible on a level to everybody that, that just hasn't happened yet. And a cultural shift as well as what you're describing. Like you, you talked about the values of that economist in Oaxaca who was saying, you know what, we don't need to get bigger. We just need to have a humane scale of life where we're able to spend time with each other and make a living and, and enjoy life, right? Um, and yeah. that seems to be, at least I could see in your book, also where the farmers, the Wisconsin farmers and their Mexican workers connected in some way in, in the sense of values. And so it seems like there's seeds of cultural change in that that connection, or at least that's that's a subtext I saw all, all throughout the book. Yeah, I think that's true. And I mean, you're also talking about people who have experienced the most extreme end of sort of the hyper productivity driven by the get bigger, get out philosophy. So that, you know, you have farmers who are just barely making it and farms going down all around them. And you have workers who are climbing into the trunks of cars and, you know, making these perilous desert crossings and chaining themselves to a job for a decade, not really living their life and waiting for life to begin when they go back. And so, you know, it's no coincidence that they've thought about, hey, maybe there's a better way. Because at some point, you know, people just become ground down. They're just squeezed too hard and they start to question whether it's really worth it and what could be different. How could we arrange things differently? But they're pretty um, powerful spokespeople for that because they themselves have put their bodies on the line and have worked as hard as a person can work and, you know, have have really some good reason to think about what could we do to make this better. Yeah. What would you say to proponents of mega dairies in, in Wisconsin? I happen to have spent some time on the Rosendale Dairy, which uh, at the time was the biggest dairy in Wisconsin outside of Oshkosh, tens, you know, over 10,000 cows. And they really, they say, look, people at places like that, corporate dairies say, we can provide more job security for uh, immigrant workers here. We can provide health care. These are good jobs. Um, we can manage our impact on the land much more easily because of the scale of our operations. Um, what, what would be your responses to that line of thinking? 
Well, I think there's a lot of greenwashing in giant agriculture. And in the book, I took a trip to Fair Oaks Farms, which is the largest dairy in the United States in Indiana. And they have this bizarre factory farm to table restaurant and sort of amusement park where you can tour the pig farm and the cow farm. You can ride on these buses and they promise you that you can see animals being born around the clock every day. And you can, I did. <laughs> um, and it's, you know, it's dystopian and bizarre. And the argument, I mean, I think, you know, there are people who are, you know, more deeply knowledgeable about this than me. Raj Patel is one, Tim Wise is another. They've written books about why heavy chemical inputs into monoculture crops and the soil erosion that goes with that is not as big ag advertises going to feed the world and solve the problem of hunger. And in fact, it's doing just the opposite. We're losing uh, a lot of land to erosion. We're poisoning our water supply. And smaller scale farming that was sustainable was better for the soil, better for the water, and better for people. So, um, you know, I, that's, that's what I think. <laughs> I think that it's not, you know, as far as offering people good jobs, you know, and treating them humanely, yeah, I, there is this phenomenon now with undocumented workers coming and doing these farm jobs that Americans don't want to do. And I think it's important that those guys speak up for their workforce and, um, and they are a powerful, powerful lobby in Washington and they should be lobbying for legal visas for people because there's no reason that people need to be living in fear, unable to drive a car, you know, cowering and yet also propping up the agricultural economy in this country. So I agree with that part. But yeah, it's, there's, I don't think there's a very good environmental argument for massive agriculture. Can you give us an update on uh, the prospects for that year-round uh, agricultural labor visas for year-round agricultural laborers and and uh, providing a path to citizenship for undocumented workers more broadly? Well, Biden promised this as part of his campaign for president, and it has remained stalled in Congress. So you know, there continue voices and other groups continue to push really hard. One of the interesting things uh, that I write about in the book is the partnership between Voces de la Frontera and the Farmers Lobby Group in Wisconsin, which is not the progressive Wisconsin Farmers Union, um, who really do recognize that they need these workers and it would be better if there were a legal system. So there's been some lobbying at the state legislature level to stop taking away people's driver's licenses. You know, it's only been going on since 2007 and to recognize and give people a path to citizenship and re recognize their labor. So there's, without a doubt, a bipartisan coalition on that issue. But the Republicans have decided to go all in on xenophobia and racism, and they are running against undocumented immigrants. Ron Johnson was just on the U.S.-Mexico border talking about the threat of this tide of brown people coming across our, our border, which is insane, you know, in Wisconsin, where we absolutely need these people. Um, Tim Michaels, the leading GOP candidate for governor, has been bashing immigrants, talking about how he built the prototype for Trump's border wall. And yet, when he was a lobbyist for the road builders lobby, when he was the president of the board of that lobby group, they worked really hard to kill a bill that would have punished employers for hiring undocumented workers. So there's a lot of hypocrisy there. Um, there was this moment in 2013, 2014, when it seemed like we were going to get substantial bipartisan immigration reform in Congress. And that was killed first by Speaker Boehner and then by our own Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, because the Republicans somehow calculate that they're better off running against undocumented immigrants and feeding this moral panic, the idea that these people are a threat to us. So really the question is, can that be overcome? And, you know, I hope so. It's, you know, the courts have been making more decisions as Supreme Court issued a ruling on the Biden administration's effort to rescind the Trump era um, blocking of asylees remain in Mexico program. So that was an advance, but it was an advance by the conservative dominated US Supreme Court. Other than that, Biden hasn't been able to get anything done. So they're piecemeal efforts, but um, I think one of the problems is that that once you break down that the, the big ambitious bill in 2013, 2014 to to bring people out of the shadows and to create a path to citizenship. And you start trying to pass little fragments of that bill, the Democrats also lose interest because they want to do something more ambitious. Um, so right now we're sort of stalled. We really are stalled. Back to the, the manifestations of that political 
stalemate here in Wisconsin on the ground. You have so many moments of talking to farmers in Wisconsin who, who talk about politics with you and talk about voting for Trump um, and loving their uh, migrant workers. Um, how did you negotiate that um, seeming cognitive dissonance, as one review of your book recently put it? And um, how do you how do you wind up after this project viewing farmers politics and the role of immigration in farmers politics? You know, it was really good for me to go out into rural Wisconsin and talk to Trump voters. And I highly recommend it to the entire word listening audience, because we really have to get out of our silos and understand other people. And um, when I talk to people on the coast, especially East Coast media types about this, they just want to know when these benighted people will see the error of their ways and start voting for Democrats. <laughs> it's really hard to keep the conversation anywhere else. And that's part of the problem, of course, because farmers don't feel well served by the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. And they're right about that. So, you know, a lot of farmers that I talked to voted for Trump because they hated NAFTA. They felt that Bill Clinton signed NAFTA and that it did a lot of damage to farms. They did not see a lot of help coming from Democrats. I did talk to several Obama Trump voters. Um, so people were looking for an outsider, and they thought that Trump was an outsider. He talked about helping the forgotten men and women of America. It looked like he was going to throw a rock at the whole system and shake things up. And the anti-immigrant rhetoric, which none of the farmers I interviewed like because they, they have these immigrant workers and they're very dependent on them, they just sort of tuned it out. People have a tremendous capacity, I think, to hear things selectively. Um, so they acknowledged that they didn't like it, but it didn't persuade them that a Democrat was a better option, particularly Hillary Clinton, who was you know, part of the Bill Clinton administration when NAFTA passed. So I think understanding a little bit about what rural people's needs are and thinking about meeting those needs instead of thinking that they're idiots who vote against their own interests and they just need to be enlightened would be a better approach for the Democrats. And there are, there are Democrats who've taken that approach. I mean, Tony Evers, who is himself a rural Wisconsinite, I think does a good job talking about rural issues, rural broadband. Um, Tammy Baldwin has won consistently in deep red counties because she actually understands agriculture and the issues that directly affect people. And she can speak to them in a knowledgeable way and has advocated for, including immigration reform. I mean, Tammy Baldwin lobbied the Trump administration to stop it's punitive immigration policies on behalf of Wisconsin dairy farmers saying this is going to hurt Wisconsin dairy farmers. And, you know, so I, so it can be done. It can be done, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's important mostly just to kind of hear where people are coming from and they don't necessarily fall into the, um, the obvious political slots that people are put in and people are more than their politics and, um, and that there, there could be kind of a lever for changing minds or for making better policy or having a more constructive approach if you can get down to that uh, deeper level. So as we begin to think about uh, wrapping up here, Ruth, um, the time has flown by, but I'd love to have you share with us what you really would like readers to take away from the book. What is the heart of it for you? I think the heart of it for me is that we're all in the same boat. You know, that people are under pressure from these huge global economic forces beyond their control. And that, um, you know, if you, if you talk to other people, if you kind of get to know them as people, then things don't seem as dire in terms of um, the political crisis that we're living through, which is, you know, very overwhelming sometimes. It's a brutal time in politics. But there is, you know, I think on that much more granular level, dealing with people and understanding kind of what we have in common with each other, there is some hope there for something more constructive happening. And in surprising ways, you know, you know in a way that surprised me. You have this uh, beautiful passage in your epilogue where you write, people continue to do what they need to do to survive, making choices that make sense to them, that are informed not just by economics, but also by a desire to make connections, to build community and to live a fulfilling life, which to me was one of the best kind of uh, clear, uh, open-hearted analyses of migration 
that I've read in a long time. And um, how do you feel like understanding these complex considerations can really help us create a more constructive dialogue about migration and migrants, both close to home and, and nationally? Well, we just have to acknowledge people's hard work and that we in the United States depend on them. We are the dependents. They are not the dependents. These people are carrying the economies of two places on their backs. They're sending home more money to Mexico than Mexico makes from exporting petroleum, which in its no-pet country. And they are propping up the rural economy in Wisconsin and throughout the United States. So just saying thank you, appreciating it, recognizing it. I think that's that's a good start. I think that's a great place for us to to wrap up. You have an event coming up this week uh, here in Madison as well. Are there any other events? You can tell us about that and any other events you want to tell us about for your book? Yeah, tomorrow I'll be at a Room of One's Own bookstore in Atwood Avenue at six o'clock doing a reading. So please come. And on August 9th, I will be at Boswell Books in Milwaukee. So yeah, I hope to see people and keep the conversation going. Sounds great. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Ruth. We've been talking this hour with uh, veteran Wisconsin journalist Ruth Conniff uh, about her new book just out, Milked, How an American Crisis Brought Together Midwestern Dairy Farmers and Mexican Workers. Thank you again, Ruth, very much. And thanks to our team here at WORT, our producer, Rochelle, our engineer, Chuck, and our news director, Shali. Uh, we'll see you next time here on A Public Affair. Thanks very much. Bye. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth has never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, no precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen. Listen and support it. Ha <laughs> ha.